0: Let's turn to to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're we're actually going through the book of 1 Samuel on Sunday mornings, but we're going to take a break today and jump into the New Testament um, to talk about prayer. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 4 through 7 and talk about that. But first, let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us through this. Lord, that you would help us understand how this was written, why it was written. That you would meet our needs through this text. That you would answer our questions and our prayers through this text. God, I pray that you'd be with me, Lord, that you would help me to rightly accurately um, expound this text. I believe it's, that it's your word, and so it, that puts a lot of healthy fear on me to do it right. I want to get your message across, so I ask for your help with that. Give us ears to hear it. Open our eyes to see it. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move amongst us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 through 7. The apostle Paul says, "Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness, some translations will say gentleness, let your gentleness be known to everyone. Why? Well, because the Lord is at hand. So do not be anxious about anything, but in Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let me read it again. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say it, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, so be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, that word there, it it describes an army that surrounds something to to take care of it and to guard it, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, this is a very, very, very famous Bible passage from which um, the classic Christian church has derived some of its most foundational theological ideas about prayer and uh, some of the most basic steps and practices about how to pray. Um, prayer is one of, the, one of the classic spiritual disciplines of the church, and Christian, Christian prayer is quite unique. We, you know, we all say prayer, and we you know, immediately when I say that word prayer, all of your minds think of certain things. It's a common word, and we all go, yeah, yeah, pray, I get that. But you might be thinking a lot of different things based on your culture, based on how you were raised, uh, what you might have learned in Sunday school. Uh, there's a lot of things that come up. Well, the Bible gets really specific, and it's important for us to constantly remind ourselves of what this is about when it, for a Christian, because Christian prayer is very, is very powerful And this is something that constantly has to be revisited because Christian prayer prayer presupposes an inner posture. That's what's very important to understand here. Christian prayer presupposes an inner posture that is the exact reverse of the kind of inner posture that our culture promotes to its members. So prayer, the way the Bible describes it, is actually very counterintuitive for people like you and, and I growing up in this society, so we have to revisit it. We've, got to, it. we've got to retrain our minds. Often our prayers seem impotent because, as James says, we ask amiss or we ask with the wrong kind of posture. Our hearts aren't right first. Um, we live, as you know, in a very individualistic, consumeristic culture. Prayer in the Bible is almost always a communal or a corporate type of a context, Uh, You remember the famous prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It starts out with the word, our Father. Not my Father or, you know, something, uh, a pronoun that's individualized, but our Father. And you'll find if you study the great Christian prayers throughout the New Testament, you'll find they're all in that context. Our, us. Same with the Old Testament. Uh, The Old Testament was written within the context of a community. So the individualism of our culture, first of all, is a foreign idea to the Bible. It's an alien idea to the Bible. Oh, it deals with individual things for sure, absolutely, it deals with that, but always within the context of a family, of a community, of a tribe, of a nation, of a world, okay? That's the first thing we need to understand. Um, But in our culture, we're taught to think of ourselves as, because we're individualistic, we are taught, whether you... Understand it or not, it's like osmosis. It's the air that we breathe. We can't help it. We're taught to think of ourselves as the subjects and things, information, people outside of ourselves as objects for us to master, manipulate in order to to control, to give us the results we think we need to have. It's all about control in an individualistic society. We think we will achieve peace. When we've learned to control our world, we have theories and practices on how to control our finances, how we get to where we live, our politics, our relationships. When every situation and event is managed and under my control, we think to ourselves, then we'll be okay. Once I get on top of this, once I'm out of debt, once I get married, once I have kids, once I then... Once I then, and so if you go through it, when you apply this to prayer, if you went to a Christian bookstore, if you went onto Amazon and you, you would be amazed at how many books on prayer there are about the techniques of prayer. I mean, there's so many. This has leaked its way into the Christian church and it reveals a very, um, a very specific philosophy of thinking that's baked in to Christianity, that's extra biblical, not in the Bible, And it's baked into Western Christianity from the start. And that is, if I can pray right, if I can get it right, if I can learn how to talk to God, and we don't think of it this way, but really manipulate Him and control Him, then I can can have some results. I can become a certain kind of a person. But the reality is that very little is actually under our control. Have you noticed that? When you stop to be honest with yourself, So when we think that peace is found by having control, then we find that there is very little that we can, we find that there's very little for us to control, we end up with an amazing amount of anxiety, an amazing amount of anxiety. In fact, we, the postmodern Western culture is the most anxious culture in documented history, fact. Let me get a little closer to home. Recently, in a recent nationwide survey, the Seattle Times reported in November that Seattle is the most anxious city in the nation. And so, as Christians living here, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible for this mentality not to leak its way into our theology, into our prayers, into our practices. So we have to revisit this idea of prayer so that we can get it right. We tend to think of prayer as something we do in order to produce the results that we believe is needed or to get God to produce certain results. So, as a result, our prayers tend to be like shopping lists of things that need to be accomplished. Um, Prayers in our culture tend to be an attempt to manipulate God without entering into a deep, vital, surrendered relationship with him through the things that we think we need. Through the problems. That's, the, that's the, the subtle difference. Christian prayer is about drawing near to God and these things that are wrong are opportunities to do so that's the idea. Let me um, read to you a spirit, uh, Catholic spiritual writer, Henry Nouwen, one of my favorites. He said, in a situation in which the world is threatened by annihilation, prayer does not mean much when we undertake it only as an attempt to influence God or as a search for a spiritual fallout shelter or as an offering of comfort in stress-filled times. Prayer is the act by which we devised ourselves of all false belongings and become free to belong to God and God alone. Let me read that that last line again. This is what he says biblical prayer is. Prayer is the act by which we devised ourselves of all false belongings and we become free to belong to God and God alone. It's an act of absolute surrender in the midst of these times, of these horrible things. So in today's passage, we're going to learn all about that. Today's passage sets us straight about Christian prayer. We'll learn three things today. We're going to learn the basis of prayer, according to the Bible. We're going to learn the part we play in that. What part do we play in prayer? How does it work? And we're going to learn the promise of prayer. The basis of prayer, the part we play, and the promise of prayer. So first, the basis of prayer, of Christian prayer. First of all, I want you to we'll look at the passage. Notice how extreme Paul is here. He is very hyperbolic, and it's on purpose. Notice he says, do not be anxious about anything. Very extreme, hyperbolic language. But in everything, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Paul could have said, don't be anxious, but try to pray. That, that, that would have done it. But instead, he chooses to get very extreme on purpose. Don't, And it's kind of... To the point where we go, come on, really, Paul? Honestly? Is this even doable? Are you setting a bar too high? Are you just showing off? Honestly? Don't be anxious about anything. Are you just talking big to get a point across? In contrast, everything? And the reason Paul is getting extreme here is because, this is what I want to point you to, he's indicating two particular orders of being two different pictures of the soul that dictate, dictate the, one, the way you and I view life. And therefore, the way you and I would pray, the way you and I would relate to God. There's a way of looking at life, according to Paul, that will lead to anxiety. It's a universal way, it's a mindset, it's a worldview. Um, it, it's, it's a, uh, sociologist would call it a social imaginary It's the way that you've been raised to look at life, to look at at situations, to filter relationships with. There's a way to do that which says uh, you will eventually end up riddled with anxiety. Everything. Okay? Or there's another way of looking at life, an inner way, an inner disposition that leads to rejoicing always. There's another big language that he uses. Rejoice always and in everything. There's a way of looking at life. That's what Paul is saying. Notice the parallelism. He structures it this way on purpose. He says, rejoice always, and that's paralleled with, be anxious for nothing. That's the literary structure of the text. Rejoice always is paralleled with, be anxious for nothing. The two expressions are synonymous. So according to this, Rejoicing equals freedom from anxiety. That's what he's saying here. Freedom is found in rejoicing always. That frees you from worry, frees you from care, frees you from anxiety. Well, what does that even mean? Basically, the bottom line is anxiety and care are symptoms of a failure to rejoice in all things. That's the, that's the cookie, the, the fortune cookie thing and I'll unpack it. Anxiety and care, biblically, are symptoms of a failure to rejoice in all things. Um, But how in the world are we supposed to do that? That sounds so great and simple. It would be so wrong of me just to leave it there and say, okay, thank you. Let's pray, and you can go about your way. That'd be frustrating if I were sitting in the crowd. I'd be like, really? How are we able to rejoice in all things? I mean, isn't this a little far-fetched and unrealistic? Also, what does that even mean? Is this, isn't this escapist? To go through life with my head in the clouds? To just ignore what's going on around me? Not if you understand the basis for Christianity. What is the basis of Christianity? Paul says it in verse 5. He's, uh, let me back up and get a, get a running start at it. I'll start in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'm going to say it. If you didn't hear it the first time, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Why? Here it is. Here's the basis for Christianity because here it is, the Lord is at hand. Why do I rejoice always? Because the Lord is at hand. And then he goes on, be anxious about nothing, but in everything. In fact, you could, if you wanted to, you could say the Lord is at hand in everything. And here's my point about that. Paul is not saying, just hold on because the end is coming. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, hang on tight because the Lord's going to come back any time now. That certainly may be true, but that's not his point. He's saying, Paul is talking about the nature of reality for a Christian in the midst of present and current adversity. That's what he's talking about. Christians, from an inner disposition of the soul, if we understand what we're believing, we believe that the Lord is at hand in everything, in everyone, in every situation, in every circumstance. The Lord is at hand. That's how we can surrender and rejoice. The Lord is at at hand now. And then later he says, in everything. This view of reality is the basis it's the matrix by which Christians look at the world it is the it's the lens we're looking at we're looking through put simply why can a Christian rejoice in everything because a Christian sees the Lord in everything he's at hand in every trial in every shortcoming in every failure in every relationship in every event in every deficiency, in every conflict of your soul, that's where God is at. The Lord is at hand. The Christian doesn't see the world as a place that's broken and that's apart from God and man, we hope that someday God comes and fixes it. No, the Christian looks at the world and he sees incarnation. What's Christmas? What is Christmas? Christ was incarnated into the brokenness we're going to talk about that when Christmas, when Advent season comes. Christ came, He put on human flesh. He was born in a, in a barn, in a manger, or a cave. He was born under subjugation to a foreign power. He was born a peasant. He was born poor. He lived a life where he experienced homelessness. He was the victim of, of, in, of injustice. He suffered. God, Christianity believes Jesus is God. God incarnated the supernatural, took on the natural. The metaphysical became physical. That's the heart, the beating heart of Christianity. So therefore, because of that, Christians see that Christ is at hand in and through the brokenness, not apart from it. Uh, you remember the famous scene the night before Jesus was killed. He had his followers around him, and you remember what he did? They're all sitting there, and unexpectedly, he took off his outer garments. He put on a cloth around his waist. He took on the position of a slave, and I just imagine they're talking, and all of a sudden they feel his hand, and he begins to wash. The dirtiest part of the human body in that culture because everyone wore sandals. There was no paved roads. I mean, you can imagine, they, everyone, you know, there's livestock and donkeys walking around. You're stepping in stuff. And the lowest position of a slave was to get down. What was Jesus' message to that? He was saying, don't think of me, God, as someone apart from the junk of this world. I am right at it. You want to get close to me? I'm in the parts that you don't like. I'm in the parts in yourself and in others that you'd like to avoid. I'm in the parts of your relationships that just rub you the wrong way. That's my sanctuary. That's where I'm at. I'm in those places. So Christians see that. We have this, we have this glasses on where we see in our marital problems, okay, Jesus, you're in this. You're changing me into your image. Okay, through this problem right now. Through our financial issues. Okay, Lord, you're in this. I just got laid off or I don't have work or the stock market just fell. Whatever it might be. In our health problems, Lord, I have no control over my body. I, but you're in this. What are you doing in me? Though my outward man is passing away, you are renewing my inward man. We, we have, it filters through everything. That's how it works. Paul is indicating that Christ is the matrix of Christian existence in the world. It's the same language that Paul uses other places when he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's Galatians 2.20. Those famous Pauline statements. For me to live is Christ. That's earlier in our book, Philippians chapter 1. Or when Paul tells believers to put on the Lord Jesus Christ to follow him, to live like him. It's all about discipleship. He talks about the new nature in Ephesians 4 that indicates that all of us that have been baptized into Christ have, quote, put on Christ. That's the idea. In other words, I am living like Christ. I'm following him. That's what the word disciple means. It it had the idea of an apprentice, someone who followed someone so much that they began to live like him. This is how Christians live in the midst of broken situations, in the midst of a broken and hurting world. And it threatens, especially in the midst of things that threaten our control of our lives, disrupt the order of our existence, and this makes Christians that are living this way incredibly tough people, really tough. Why? Because our identity and our value is not resting on things that can be taken away. Um... Your family can be taken away, God forbid. Your finances can leave. Your career that you've spent so long building can, can fall apart. And when, if you are, that's why in that the beginning song, we spent some time, it says, my heart will sing no other name but Jesus, Jesus. Our hearts begin to rest our value and our identity on other things. And the danger with that is they can be taken away. And that's when real suffering can happen. But for the Christian, our value is placed on something immutable, unchangeable, on Jesus. Our identity and our value is on him. Nothing's going to change that. So when I get fired, I can be, of course, disappointed, but not crushed. I can only get so crushed, right? I have to say that to myself. Okay, Lord, you're doing something. I'm disappointed, that hurt, but I can only be so hurt. Why? Because it wasn't my main thing anyway. The same, let me flip the coin, the same goes for success. Let's say you get promoted or you get what you want. We go, woo, I'm blessed and I'm excited, but you know what? I can only get so excited because it wasn't my main thing anyway. Christianity gives you, this perspective, gives you an amazing amount of evenness, Even killedness that we need. As Christians, our identity and our value do not reside in the precariousness of this life. For the Christian, identity and value are found in a vital and living relationship with God that finds him in everything, especially the broken things, the tough things, especially that. That's why it's a little counterintuitive, right? Right? We come to God with prayers that say, okay, God, there's a problem over there, but you're over here, and so my prayer is to get you from point A to apply your power to point B, so that way it will be fixed. That's typically the mindset. It's really hard not to have that in this. If you've got that, don't worry. I do too. It's really tough. We're swimming in this culture. It's almost impossible not to. God, my, my, my kids are doing this over here. If you could just leave what you're doing there and go to my kids over here then, or there, I've got this going on inside of me. If I could just get you to come in and do this, do your thing in here, you know, whoo, then I'll be fine. I need to get you, I need to be in control to get you to come and make me what I think I need to be or give me the results that I think I need. But when we see problems as things that need to be fixed, and prayer as a way to control God to fix them, you're just asking for anxiety. Oh, gosh, you're going to be anxious. You're going to be devastated. You're going to be worried. Anxiety and worry, then, come when we are driven by the need to order and control our own lives because, to be frank, we don't trust God to do it. All worry and anxiety to some degree come from a place of distrust in either God to do it or for him to do it the way we think it needs to be done. We're still holding on to control. True Christian prayer then is saying, no agenda, no expectation. I surrender to you in this. Have your way. That brings us to number two. So first, the basis of prayer is an inner disposition that sees God in everything, especially the crucibles of life, especially those, and they are therefore opportunities for us to surrender ourselves to him, to be surrendered to him. This causes prayer naturally. Prayer is our, so if we see God in everything, if we recognize and practice the awareness of his presence in everything and in every relationship, What do you do with someone who is with you? You talk to them. It comes very natural. If you know that God is in it all, you're going to say, oh Lord, this is so grieving. What are you doing there? Oh God, I surrender to you in this. Lord, I believe that you're in, you're not over there and I need to crane you into this situation. No, 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 you're in this so that means you have a plan for me. What are you you doing? I yield myself to you. And there's this dialogue, this processing going on between a Christian. This is, uh, Paul says to pray. In fact, he says three things that we sometimes are taught as synonyms. Pray, supplication, and thanksgiving. They're not synonyms. They're actually different words. They're, they're, and they mean different things. Prayer is what I just talked to you about. It's, it's when Paul says, you know, to pray without ceasing. Same word in the Greek. To pray without ceasing. It's talking about because of this inner posture or inner disposition in your soul, you're just talking and processing Uh, life through God there's a constant dialogue and conversation going on especially through the crucibles through the the tough things because you believe you're following Jesus how did Jesus bring redemption through the cross right there's a resurrection on the other side of the cross if we're following him we say okay there's a resurrection for me in this where are where is it how do I have to go through it God help me go through it he's in everything uh, he, he says, all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purposes. It's, those, it's that mentality that he's talking about. The natural response to that kind of matrix is just prayer. When we practice the awareness of God, he's, we pray, we talk to him. You don't have to, it becomes a habit. I don't like the word disciplines because of what that word means to us. It talks about kind of like duty or you know, and it is for sure a duty and a discipline, but I'm talking more of a habit. Um, habits are ruled by your heart. You've formed your habits because of what your heart loves to do. That's just true. Christianity is a war for your heart. God wants your heart. And once you have this inner posture that Jesus has come and taken, his kingdom is in your heart, you're gonna form a natural habit or a discipline if you like, but you're gonna form a habit of Prayer talking to him. Second, we, he says to make supplication. The word supplication in the Greek is deesis, and it implies um, an awareness of our inability to meet the events and the relationships of our lives in our own strength and our own resources. Let me read that again. It implies an awareness of of our inability to meet the events and the relationships of our lives in our own strength and in our own resources. It describes one, in other words, who recognizes, I can't do anything about this. In other words, someone who is brave enough to confess, I'm not in control. I can't control how this person thinks. I can't control what this person says. I can't control what these people do. I can't control what my bosses decide. I can't control the weather. I can't control what's going to happen in the next year. I can't I'm I'm just out of control. So I see this crucible, I see this thing and I if I'm supplicant, I say I give up my ability, my 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 tendency, my western tendency to st- is the world into the mold I think it ought to be I, prayer then supplicant prayer is a way of going I give it to you I give it to you he calls us to continually turn to God as the source of our sufficiency in every circumstance so it's a supplication is a recognition of my powerlessness my impotence but it's also a recognition of his power and his ability Okay? It's a recognition of my inadequacy. It's a, it's a humble heart. It's a humble heart. Maybe this is something that's even going on in you that you can't control. Have you had those things? I can't stop doing what I want to stop doing. I find myself keep doing it. You start by saying, I have no control over myself. I didn't ask to be this way. I just have these things. These, I've got this habit or this whatever it is. God... I'm inadequate. You are all adequate. So it's just this humble recognition that I am not God and you are. That's supplication. So he calls us to continually turn to God as the source of our sufficiency in every circumstance. Prayers and supplications then are not reactions to circumstances. This is true prayer and supplication. Is not a reaction to circumstances. They are habits of the heart by which we meet the troubles of life. This is the way we deal with life. Go to prayer. Surrender to the Lord. Go to prayer. Henry Nowen again. I got to do it. Not now and again. <laughs> Henry Nowen again says, We want to move closer to God, the source and goal of our existence. Listen to this. But at the same time, we realize that the closer we come to God, the stronger will be his demand that we let go of the many, quote-unquote, safe structures we have built around ourselves. Prayer is such a radical act because it requires us to criticize our whole way of being in the world, to lay down our old selves and accept our new self, which is Christ. Prayer, therefore, is the act of dying to all that we consider to be our own and of being born again to a new existence, which is not of this world. It's a release. It's a surrender. It's a giving up. It's a free fall. It's radical abandonment to someone who is more powerful than me, who knows way more than me. That's what it is. This is the part of Christian prayer that goes against the culture because it's opposite of control if you haven't picked up on that. It's the opposite. The way in which we pray is with this inner disposition of complete surrender. That means no demands, no agendas, no manipulations, no quid pro quo, just complete, beautiful, let go, surrender to him. And this level of surrender brings the next the word that Paul uses, joy, thanksgiving, rejoicing in all things. Remember, Paul is using this to contrast a way of life that causes anxiety, worry. Surrender to God, that is admission to our own powerlessness and admission to his omnipotence, causes rejoicing. Why? Because you trust him. My little boy Noble sometimes struggles with anxiety, especially at night, lights go off, and he's thinking, oh gosh, is there a monster? Or he'll say, I'm afraid of bad guys. Um, What about this? What about that? And I'll say, do you trust me? Do you trust your mom? Yeah. And 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 we do this exercise. Okay, stand up. We turn on the lights of his room. He gets up in his pajamas and now he knows how to do it and I have him face the wall and close his eyes and I say fall into my arms and trust that I'm going to catch you and because he trusts me he does it I'll let him go like this far to the floor and he just abandoned trust me and I catch him and he starts to laugh with joy and he goes right to sleep the point is someone here loves me and I rejoice to let him have me. My dad's gonna take care of it. There's a release that goes. (sighs) I hope I never accidentally, you know. Nicole calls me right in the, yeah? Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) This level of surrender and freedom brings joy. So here's our equation. Surrender because of trust that's the first part. Surrender because of trust equals freedom and thanksgiving. That's what Paul is saying here. Surrender because you know your God, you trust him, you know he loves you, equals an ability to have freedom and joy. Control and manipulation because of distrust, you have to take care of it on your own. No one's going to take care of me but me. That equals grave anxiety, worry. Because you're never going to stop being human. It's never going to happen. We're limited. So trust is a release of both mind and heart to God. Trust. This is our, a lot of translations. The famous translation for this Greek word, pistis, is faith. I think a better translation is trust. Trust is what the classical Christian tradition calls detachment. Detachment. You're able to let go. It is neither passive resignation or fatalistic acquiescence to whatever comes next. It's not those things. It is rather a consistent posture of actively turning our whole being to God so that God's presence, his purpose, his power can be released through our lives, in our souls, through our lives until it erupts into joy. Joy. The term anxious describes a mode of existence that's characterized by attempting to control your own life. This kind of anxiety arises whenever we attempt to impose and maintain our own control over our world or over the people in our lives. Oof, ever been in a relationship like that? Psychologists call it codependent or enmeshed. I'm not happy. You, You are responsible for my happiness. Now think about that. If you think your partner, your lover, your friend, whoever, your parents, is responsible for your happiness, that means you need to change them to get them to do their part. They are not, I'm the subject, they're outside of me, and if I can get them to do their bit, then I will be happy. You manipulate, you control. Who likes to feel suffocated by someone like that? I don't think, right, yeah, no one. No one on the planet enjoys a relationship like that. You want freedom. By contrast, thanksgiving is the deep inner posture of joyful release of our life to being gods with absolute trust, without demands, without conditions, without reservations. I trust you. I trust you. Now, with these things in place, with these things in place, then, Paul says, make your requests known God with and that's important that's not stand alone we we like to think of prayer of just that bit make your what is prayer making my requests known to God no Paul sets it up he sets up this inner posture of the being first and with that in place and only in that with that in place in that context he says make your requests known to God if we don't have that inner posture our requests Tend to be narrowly focused on our agendas, on on our center, self-reference, the self-reference matrix of life. And our prayers can be very anxious. When we have the posture of prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, however, we make requests based on the deeper matrix of God's presence and God's purpose, which is already at work in everything. Right? everything. It's already at work in everything. Although we still have our perception of the situation, we still see the pain, we're still bothered by stuff, we still would rather not certain things be, of course. But our requests become a bridge between our desires and the purposes of God. Our requests are manifestations of placing our lives into the deeper matrix of God's presence and purpose. um, Of course, the ultimate example of this is found in Jesus. (laughs) Let me read to you um, Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. Look at Jesus here. You'll see it. This is right before he's going to die. He's under tremendous pressure. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be murdered in the most brutal way, and more than that, um, theologically speaking, he knows that God is going to punish him cosmically for the sins of the whole world. <laughs> Past, present, and future. That's a lot of pressure. A lot of reason to be anxious. Look at, what he's, look at Jesus. He says, And it came, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, listen, he says, Pray, this is to his disciples, Pray, why? That you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away and he knelt down and he prayed and here's what he said. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. It's very real. No escapist here. I'm feeling it. I'd rather not do it. Remove this cup from me. Supplication, release. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See? And there appeared to him an angel from heaven who strengthened him. What's the promise of Paul? You do this and the peace of God will guard your heart. The word is that of a troop, of an army that circles the thing or person they're trying to protect to guard them. The peace of God that passes understanding will guard your heart. It means he passes your understanding of the circumstances. You don't know what's happening. You don't have an answer. But the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. Here, an angel comes in from heaven, strengthens him, and look, he goes, and being in agony, he's strengthened, but he's in agony. He prayed more earnestly. So, we go, he, so he's in agony. He leans in more. He he leans in and and sweat like great drops of blood fell down to the ground. He's under tremendous pressure even with the strength that he's receiving. And when he rose from prayer he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. I smile because (laughs) that is so often my morning prayer times. I'm praying and then I start dreaming in my prayers. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? And he says it again. Rise, get up, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let me ask you, based on that, what specific temptation is Jesus feeling concerned of getting of staying away from? Denying Jesus. What's that? Denying Jesus. I think I think the temptation is to get out of the situation to get out of pain is that what you're saying to get out of the crucible and it's interesting that he tells his disciples this pray that you may not be tempted to leave the crucible why because what's in the crucifixion for, what's in the crucifixion no redemption without it in other words let me stay in here God because I know you've got something better I'm asking you to give me strength in the midst of this. I'm surrendering to your will. I there's so much pressure. I want to escape. I want to but not my will, but yours be done. He wanted it to be over, but because he knew God was in the midst of the cross, he prayed, "Not my will, but yours be done." Do you hear the balance there? On the one hand, he doesn't have his head in the sand. He doesn't have his head in the clouds. He's not escaping. He knows what's going on. But on the other hand, he's completely surrendered. He's completely released. How did he surrender? But I will pose to you, how did did Jesus get through the cross? How did he surrender to God's will in that moment? Joy. Prove it. Prove it, Mike. Okay, fine, I will. This is Hebrews chapter 12, looking to Jesus, this is talking to you and I, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross, what was his joy? Well, it was you. Was it getting back to God? No, he had God before. He's Logos. He's he's the incarnate God-man. He had fellowship with God for all of eternity. It wasn't that. He didn't need to go through the cross to get that. But because of the brokenness in you and me, he did not have you and me. What got him through the cross to the resurrection was you and me. It made it worth it. So that we can know that enduring our crosses, what's the joy in your cross? To know that it's going to bring you to Him. He's in the crucible. He's in it. I'll get you at the end. He's in the crucible. And it's His way of coming to, it's His way of getting to your heart. It's his way of drawing near to you. It's your path to draw near to him. In your brokenness, in the hurt, it's the great judo move theologically where God uses bad and evil and flips it around and makes it accomplish what he wanted. That's your heart, you and me. I'll tell you, without understanding that you are the joy that got him through the cross, you won't be able to understand him as the joy that will get you through the, cross of, the crosses of your life. And that makes you a very buoyant person in stormy seas. You can get through anything. You can be anxious for nothing. But draw next, close to God in everything. It's foolproof. You can't, you can't mess it up. You see, if your posture's like that, you say everything. Even my own fault. I deal with people all the time. I tell them this too, and they say, "Yeah, but I did this to myself this time." Even that. Even that. I have to end with this verse because it's just so great. But I didn't write it down, so I'm, and I don't want to butcher it. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do this thing here. It's you'll know it once you hear it, probably. For I am convinced, this is the way we think, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, don't we worry about whatever's coming? Nor powers, that he's talking about, cosmic spiritual powers the bible teaches that there's a spiritual world and that's broken too scary stuff going on there nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation in other words fill in the blank including yourself i've heard people teach this verse and say yeah but it doesn't say that you're you can't keep yourself from the presence of god last i checked we were created beings we are anything else in all of creation Okay, it's just logic. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. You guys, let me read it fully without me interrupting it. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you and me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're in Christ everything is an opportunity to draw closer to him, to follow him. And that is the basis of prayer. It's cruciform. Through this crucifix will come resurrection. Give me strength. The peace of God will guard my heart as I'm going through it. Amen.